And so this evening we're going to talk about Rahab. And when, when Joseph asked, and I think it was actually almost 12 full months ago when Joseph asked me to speak, I have no idea why I chose this topic, okay? And so as I was getting it together this week and kind of brainstorming last week, I started to think about relationships a lot. And kind of like y'all, my wife and I, we, we started dating when we were young. Uh, and I see some, some young people kind of scattered throughout here. My wife and I started dating at 16 years old. Her name was Melissa Gross. If you happen to know who Byron Laird is, it's her grand, or his granddaughter. And so we started dating at 16 years old. And what was really cool about that is when we met, I had a really good friend. And this guy was a great, great friend. He One day he was going to meet up with this girl he really liked. And my car broke down. I had a flat tire. And he said, I'll tell you what, Patty, I'm, I'm going to pick you up on my way to go meet this girl. And I was like, That's, you are such a good friend, right? And so he picks me up, he drops me and my car off to get the tire change. And he's like, as long as you don't mind hanging out with me and this girl for a little bit, you know, everything will be okay. And I was like, thanks, you are a great friend, right? I was less of a great friend because when I knocked on that girl's door on the side porch of her house, I was like, he is not asking her out. I am asking this girl out instead. And so I actually asked her out that evening right out from under my best friend at 16 years old. Uh, but still, here we are now with two kids, you know, a mortgage, all that adult stuff that you have, and loving life. But in any relationship, no matter if it started when you were 16 or when you're 36 or even older than that, there's normally this moment when a relationship gets really serious. And it's that moment where you meet the parents. Now, side note, my wife's father was a dentist in Huntsville, and he was actually my family's dentist, so this gets really weird, you know? And so I was always scared of him. I called him Dr. Gross until pretty much a month before we got married. He was like, just quit calling me Dr. Gross. But there's this moment where you meet the parents, and just for the young people in the audience, look, it does not have to be that awkward. It is awkward, but it does not have to be that way. There are some dads, though, some of you may be in this room right now who like look forward to the day where you can scare your little daughter's boyfriends, right? I was helping a friend move into his new house a, a couple weeks ago, and he had built this home on the side of a hill, and he's a former Air Force officer. And he was showing me around his house, and it was a beautiful home, but it, we go downstairs, and there's this one door, and he opens it, and I promise you the door is like six inches, and it weighs like 200 pounds. And he, you can see he's smiling. And guys, you're going to get this in a minute because he goes, this is the room where I'm going to keep all my guns and ammo. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. And he goes, and then a bigger smile. He goes, he has three daughters. He goes, I cannot wait to bring their little boyfriends down here and scare them to death. I mean, he was, he was already planning. His oldest is like five years old, and he built a room specifically to scare these girls' boyfriends. And if you've ever gone through that meet-the-parent moment, uh, no matter how many years ago it was, whether it was in a casual setting or if it was in a formal setting, you kind of know those feelings that you have. You want to make sure you don't look stupid, right? You want to make sure that, you know, you show your care and concern. Maybe you bring a gift with you because you really want people to, them to see how caring you are. Maybe if you go to their house, you offer to help do dishes. You know, all those great things that go along with, with meeting your significant other's uh, family. Lord, you know we're talking about Rahab tonight, right? And so you kind of know where everything's going to end. And so stick with me here. 
let's, let's actually play out this story of Rahab in 2019, if you'll allow me to, because it, it, it's really interesting. I mean, we can, we can read about it through the Bible, and we can kind of forget what we're talking about, and we can forget we're talking about a real person and real people. But if this was 2019, could you imagine that moment where a boy brings his significant other, Rahab, home to meet his parents? Let's just pretend, like I said, this is modern day. And maybe you are that parent, and you're sitting there, and, and your son brings home this girl, and he, is, he tells you, look, she is a, she's a new convert, but she is very dedicated to her faith. Uh, and you're going to see that just, just by meeting your you know, parents. You're going to see that. And, and then parents, you, and you're talking, and, and everything's going great. Maybe you as the parent, you, you've made a good meal. You've got a great dessert conversation is going great, right? Everything's going well, uh, and you're talking, and conversation's good, and so you start to notice, though, there's everything she talks about, you know, maybe she mentions her new hometown, like, you know, like she recently moved, kind of like us, and her new job, and her new faith, and everything's new to her, and you're, you're not thinking anything of it as the parent, you're just listening, but then to kind of help conversation keep moving at one point, you just friendly ask, hey, Rahab, I noticed you always are talking about your, your new life and your new job. What what'd you do before? What did you do before? What, what, was, what was life like for you a few years ago? And things get awkward, don't they? Everyone kind of gets silent and uncomfortable for a minute. Rahab doesn't answer. Your son, maybe he's the one. Maybe he steps up and he goes, well, Mom, about that. Rahab kind of has a past she doesn't like to talk about. She was actually a prostitute. Could you imagine being that parent in that moment? I mean, if I'm the dad in that scenario, I know exactly what I'm doing. Whatever food is closest to me, I'm shoving in my mouth just to buy some time, right? Because I've got to process this. And mom probably has something like, oh. And she pauses. And you go, yeah, mom, we, I, I know. I know we didn't tell you all that ahead of time. But, but you need to know that about her. But, but her faith is so strong. Ever since she's come to know God, she is a whole nother person. I can almost imagine any good southern mom grabbing that cup of sweet tea from in front of her, right? And taking one of those deep gulps. You know the ones where like you can hear it throughout the whole room. And she goes, I'm really glad. I'm grateful that you, that you told us that. That's really interesting, Right? That would be a tough situation to be in now. And if any of us were trying to put ourselves in that position, we would, we would really be uncomfortable if we're just being honest. But I think we need to remember these moments uh, because we're talking about a real person and a real family that we're going to talk about this evening. I still picture, by the way, Dad is still shoving food in his mouth so he does not have to answer any questions. He's not ready for, to handle this at all. And so what we're going to look at tonight is that person. We're going to look at Rahab. And it's tough, really tough, to try to imagine the obstacles that she had to go through. Uh, I read my daughter a little children's Bible every night, and the story of Rahab is really smoothed over. If you've ever written a children's, read a children's Bible, it's, it just kind of glosses over everything with it. But she had some real obstacles. She, went, she was this person living in a town where, where she obviously had a profession that, that none of us would want to even think about and that she wouldn't have been proud of. And yet, if we keep reading all the way through our Bibles and we go all the way to Hebrews 11.31 that we'll look at in a minute, but if we go all the way to there, 
She's listed as a hero of faith. Here's someone, if we were being honest, we would struggle just to have dinner with. But she's a hero of faith. And it's strange, and it's kind of uncomfortable, and kind of a little awkward. There's a lot we can learn from Rahab if we look through Scripture. And so I want to look, what we're going to do is we're going to start with the obvious place. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 2 in just a moment. And then we're going to see what other pieces of the puzzle we get. How did we get from Joshua chapter 2 to Hebrews 11? What happened in between there? Why is she listed in the, in the heroes of faith? Is there any more information or do we, do we just know what's pretty obvious? And so if you have your Bibles, like I said, we'll be in Hebrews, or Hebrews Joshua chapter 2 as we begin. I'm not going to read everything because then we would be here till after 8 o'clock. But Joshua chapter 2, uh, it begins with this whole idea where the spies are going into the land uh, and they're going to kind of scope out Jericho, right? And, and so these two spies, they're trying to hide in a land and if you really think about it, it, it almost makes sense. They want to go to a place where no one's going to ask a lot of questions. They want to go to a place where it's kind of common to see people come and go. They want to go to a place where... Again, you can leave and people won't ask a lot of questions. And so they end up at this prostitute's house. The perfect hideout for what they're going to do. And so we pick up here because we realize that she's here, the king kind of gets a whiff of it, and he sends a messenger out in the first about four verses here. And then as we pick up in about verse four, it says, after they come, they ask, where are these men? And most of you are very familiar with this story, but the woman had taken the two men and and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I don't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on their way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Still the same thing in my children's Bible, right? You know, she's hiding them on the roof. The king's like, do you even know who these men you're dealing with are? That's kind of the picture I see in my head. And he sends someone to check, and she's like, they're already gone, but she knows good and well that they're, that they're hiding. Look at verse 8 and beyond. Before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And soon as, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in, hev in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's pretty powerful, right? Here's this lady who really has no background in spiritual training. No one's really explained anything to her. All she's saying is, look, we've seen what God has done. We've heard these stories. They've gone throughout the land. And at this point in her life, she's like, look, I trust in God more than I trust in the king. And you have to think about that. That's a big thing to say. To say that, look, I'll be accused of treason because I trust God. I've heard what He's going to do. I respect God more than the king. I'm more afraid of God than the king. However, your brain processes that. And so, the story continues. And if you're following along, we'll move over to chapter 6 and just kind of skim through that real quick as well. 
Joshua chapter 6, we know the, the plan's been enacted. They've marched around the cities. They've blown the horn. You know, everything's going exactly how it's supposed to be. Pick up in verse 17. We're still getting the instructions here. And the city and all of its inhabitants shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom, she, whom we sent. If you kind of bounce back to about verse 22 back there, you see that that's exactly what happened. After the walls fall, after everything goes down, the men, they keep their promise. They go to, to Rahab. They take her and her family and they leave the city. And it almost just stops there. Right? We could almost leave the story there. And I would say 90-something percent of the time, we leave the story of Rahab right there. Oh, that's great. They saved her and her family. I'm glad everyone was good and everyone's happy the end. But there's more to it than that. There's a couple different places where Rahab is specifically mentioned. Like we said, the first is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, where she is listed in that hall of fame of faith, that, that place where we're supposed to take so much information and hope from. And it says, by faith, right? By faith. It shows her faith. By faith, the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Man, Rahab didn't have to... She didn't deal with that. Okay, and then in James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, we kind of see more of an example of Rahab, this example of faith and works put together, right? And it says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? As the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I think if there's more information here, we need to dig into it because here's somebody, again, that we really probably don't want to think a lot about her former life and what it would be like and what it would be like if somebody like Rahab walked into our foyers and walked into our congregations. But there's a story here. And if we keep digging, thankfully the text gives us a few more clues. And that's, that's really what I want to look at. I was actually stalking your website before I came because that's what every good millennial does. And I was stalking your website and I noticed that if you were reading along with your Bible reading plans, you cover um, Matthew chapter 1 this week, right? I think it was earlier in the week if you're really following it closely. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 is going to give us a little clue. Now for those of you who maybe are not on that reading plan, uh, Matthew chapter 1, those first set of verses are the, the genealogy of Jesus, Right? Uh, and if you're doing your daily Bible reading and you've made it all the way to July 17th, it would be tempting to just skim through that genealogy and not pay any attention to it. But I know you're better than that. You read it. And so you probably already know where we're going here. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, his short, sweet, to the point little phrase, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Wait. So Rahab gets married. To this guy named Salmon, and they have a kid named Boaz? I really wish, first of all, I would love like a parenthetical statement here with a, a lot more information. I'd love a little note off to the side because there's a lot going on there that just kind of starts to make us think about this. Now, we don't really have a lot of information about her husband. Let me go ahead and throw that out. And Rahab specifically is not going to be mentioned in the text anywhere else. You can look uh, but the, the best we can find is her son Boaz, which we'll get to. Uh, some people like to say, by the way, a lot of scholars, I'd say most scholars agree 
uh, that her husband was one of the spies. Now, I can't say that one way or the other, so I'm not going to like hang my hat on that, but it's a cool little story. And so if, if it's true, that's really neat. And that's one of those things I'd love to find out when I get to heaven. But one way or another, we know she had a husband and they at least had this one child named Boaz. And that's who I want to look at today. Because while we don't have any more information about Rahab herself, what we see is this son. And you think about it, for right or for wrong, a lot of times when we see a, a child, maybe who maybe a kid comes into your company or who you work for, and you see this young person who's very dedicated and really you know, thorough in their job, a lot of times and respectful, a lot of times you think, I bet that kid had good parents, right? That's what we think. It's just natural. Uh, it's not all the way true. Of course, you know that. Some of the best parents I know have had kids that are not that great. And some kids I know who are the best kids I've ever met had the most terrible home life. So it's not always that way, but a lot of times that's kind of how we view things. And so I want to look at Boaz and his life. And so we're going to go back to our Old Testaments. Uh, You may already know where we're headed. We're headed to the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth, uh, for those of you flipping, trying to find it, it's tucked between Judges and 1 Samuel in our Old Testaments. And it's really short. It's four chapters, and so it's pretty easy to, to skip as you go. But if you can find Judges or if you can find the books of Samuel, you, you know, start working your way back and you can find it. As we look at Ruth, though, we have to kind of set it up. We don't have time to go through all of the book of Ruth, all four chapters, and really dissect everything. Uh, we could, but we really wouldn't get to any application at that point. But I want you to kind of picture this time frame here. The book of Ruth is written during the time of the book of Judges. We're going to see that in just a minute. It's during the time of the Judges. If you look at Ruth chapter 1, in fact, it says, verse 1, chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled, you could just pretty much stop there. That kind of gives us a, a time frame. In the days when the, when the judges ruled. So we kind of know what's going on. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that in the days of the judges, Israel was on this roller coaster ride, right? God's people, they would, they would obey for a while and then they'd disobey and God would do something to cause them to come back and there'd be obedience and disobedience and you could just keep going with that, that whole roller coaster ride over and over and over again. So it's a complicated time in the, in the history that's already going on. But if you really want to see what it's like, you can almost just look at the verse before this. So if you're open in my Bible, it's the next page behind it, Ruth chapter 1. But if you look back to Judges, the very last verse in the book of Judges gives us a glimmer of what's going on during this time frame. So Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know what you think of when you hear that. I have no idea what goes through your mind when you hear everyone just did what was right in their own eyes because that's very similar to what we probably feel like we're going through as well where everyone just does this whole postmodern idea that everyone's doing what's right. But as I read literally this morning because this judges fell right into my daily Bible reading, there's some really dark stuff that's going on during the days of the judges, right? We can, we can see, what is it, chapter 18 and 19? Uh, and we see how bad idolatry had really become during that time. You know, it's where we have the household gods and people are bringing in their own priests into their own houses and idolatry is just out of control at this point. And then there's this, this really messed up section in chapter 19, which I don't remember in vacation Bible school, mind you, where there's this, this guy with his concubine who gets cut up into 12 pieces and he mails them out to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a dark time in their history. 
This is not a good time. Everything's not going okay. Things are really, really bad. And that's what makes Boaz so interesting. Because he's going to appear in this time where people are doing some really dark things. Where people aren't necessarily doing what God wants them to. They're not following God's law. They know the law, but they're in these cycles, right, of disobedience over and over again. And so we just need to kind of keep that in our mind while we think about all this. And so just think about this. Here we have, if we're putting all these pieces together, how, if we're kind of laying out a map of, okay, is this going to be a good situation or a bad situation? We have Boaz, who is the son of a prostitute, and he's living during a time that is very dark and no one is really obeying God's law anymore. If you ask me if I was looking at that as a former youth minister, I'd say that's an at-risk child, right? That's a child who's in a bad place. He may have a bad family life for all we know. That's not it. Boaz is going to turn out to be just the most amazing person that we can look at. Like I said, we can't read all the way through, but in Ruth chapter 2, we kind of get introduced to the character of Boaz. We kind of begin to see some of the different things that, that play through. Uh, as we look at it, we see that there's this guy named Boaz, and depending on your translation, it might say that he's a worthy man or a man of good standing or, a, or a, an influential man or you know something like that. I like how that's actually phrased. Uh, wealthy and influential is probably the best phrase we could use in our modern day ways to understand the character of Boaz. It's someone who's well-respected in the community, a pillar in the community. That's kind of how we're introduced to this guy. It kind of begins to shed light on a situation during this very dark time. Here's this, this guy who we're going to see the character really shine through. And one of the first things that we notice if we're looking through is that Boaz cares about keeping the law because when we're introduced to him, we see his field and his workers and we see they're keeping the Old Testament practice of not taking everything off of their fields. They're leaving a little extra for those people in need to take. And that's a good sign of character, isn't it? And we see how, you know, it, that's first of all, in my mind, today, in today's day and age, that's hard to imagine that that someone would leave extra, that you know, some of these farmers would leave a little extra for people to come collect who need it. I don't care if you're a farmer or an engineer or an accountant or whatever, we're supposed to make the best use of everything, right? We're, we've got quotas to make, we've got deadlines, we've got you know, itemized lists that we've got to do. But here's a man, a pillar in the community who says, no, no, God said not to take it all. He says there's people who are going to need it, so I'm going to leave it for them. And what we're going to end up seeing is that Boaz, his obedience is going to end up playing a big role in God's plans here. And because of that, Ruth is able, when she comes after her family, and that's what's interesting in the story, Ruth is obviously about her, but Boaz is just this you know, secondary character until towards the end. But she's able to come and collect this poor widowed lady who comes in with nothing. And she's able to collect those scraps. And in Ruth chapter 2, verse 8, we actually see where Boaz and Ruth meet together, and that he was actually really kind to her. Look look at verse 8. It says, I don't even think I made a slide for it. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and, and go after them. Have I not, have I not uh, charged the young men not to touch you and when you're thirsty? You go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Think about that for a minute. It's powerful, wealthy, 
influential man has this poor, widowed beggar coming just to take the scraps off of his field. And he says, look, don't go anywhere else. Stay with my people. We'll protect you. This isn't a good place, right? I don't know. Winchester probably doesn't have a bad part of town. I drove through it on my way here. But they're saying, this is not a good place where you want to be. You, you want to be able to... You need the protection. My people will protect you. you. Don't go anywhere else. You need water. My people's water. You can have some of that water. And he's really doing what he can. He's saving her time. He's saving her effort. He's protecting this woman that he doesn't even know at the time. And in verse 11, we kind of pick up there and we see that Boaz kind of knows the story. What's going on when one of the workers asks in verse 11, but Boaz answered, um, answered her, talking to Ruth here, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. This guy cares. To me, it's just a person who cares. And I hope you have somebody in your mind already. Just a, a person that actually cares about people, that kind of needs, that sees the needs in people, that has the type of eyes that sees those needs. He knows her background. He knows it's not good. Yeah, he knows that, you know, she already lost her husband and, and he's still taking care of Ruth. A TV salesman would probably say, but that's not all, right? Um, we know that those landowners shouldn't get the whole crop, and we know all that from our Old Testament studies, but he goes on even further, and he says, look, we're going to give you more grain, we're going to give you more supplies, we're going to give you more of the things uh, that you actually need here. And you start to see that, Bo that the character of Boaz really show through as this all goes through. Uh, Ruth chapter 3, moving a little quicker, we won't look at a lot of the details, but one day Naomi, the mother-in-law, decides that that it's, she wants to help things along. and She kind of encourages Ruth to, to get dressed up, to get dressed up nice, to kind of put on her best clothes and be ready to go and to, to go kind of talk to Boaz about this as it's obvious that he cares about her, kind of being dressed to impress. And so she steps it up. They go to the threshing floor. Uh, Ruth goes and uncovers his feet and kind of sits at his feet, which is an ancient shiny a showing of wanting to the protection of someone and of course, Boaz wakes up because if I'm asleep and somebody takes the covers off my feet, I'm going to wake up as well. And he wakes up. And what I really like about chapter 3, we, again, we don't have time to look deep into it. Here's a guy in the middle of nowhere with a girl that he knows likes her. That's how we'd say that, right? In youth ministry. Here's a guy in the middle of nowhere with a girl he knows likes her, and no one's going to know any different about what's about to happen. Boaz had all kinds of options. He, he could have made fun of this desperate poor woman, right? He could have made fun of her advance. He could have easily kind of said, look, are you, what's the word we'd probably use, a floozy for sneaking up on me in the middle of the night? What are you trying to do? Or worse, Boaz could have taken advantage of this situation. He could have said, no one's going to know what happens out here. And so here we are. But he doesn't do any of those things. He's respectful. He mentions there's another kinsman redeemer, someone between him and her that he wants to marry her, and he kind of lays this down payment for her. But he says, look, we can't do it yet, and we're not actually going to look at it because I just remembered I'm not speaking till 8 o'clock. And he, he eventually goes to the city gate, and he makes the offer to the kinsman redeemer, and he says, look, if you want it, you can have it. He goes through and he does things right. And at the very end of Ruth, if we're in chapter 4, down in verse 13, we start to see that once they're married, they have a child. And if we look at the very end of Ruth, chapter 4, those last verses, we see that genealogy that we're used to seeing at the beginning of a lot of books, and we begin to see what happens. 
that from this family of Ruth and Boaz, Boaz's mom being Rahab, we end up getting the lineage that leads to David and then to Jesus. It's a pretty powerful kind of connection that you think about there. Uh, And there's a lot of things we can take from that. All through the book of Ruth, we see Boaz again trying to keep God's law, doing what he needs to do. Um, He wants to see, you know, he wants to do God's law even when he doesn't know where it's going to end. He doesn't care. He's not thinking about what he can gain from it. He's just always following God's law. He's willing to follow God's commands even if no one else is. And even though he is wealthy and influential, he treated everyone with respect. You see that in chapter 2. He treats his workers with respect. He treats everyone that he comes in contact with. Chapter 3, we really see how he trusts uh, in God, in God's plans. And of course, chapter 4, like I just mentioned, he kind of goes through things the right way. He shows us, look, he's not going to take a shortcut to get what he wants. He's going to continue to do things the right way, and that's God's way. There's a lot we can learn from Boaz, and I think if we look at the blank and we say, well, how do we get from Rahab and Jericho to the Hall of Fame of Faith that even though we don't have her name specifically mentioned anywhere else, that we can see it there. That we can see that her son respected women, right? Her son respected people in need. He knew how vulnerable people could be and he was willing to take care of them. And we need to be looking at those same characteristics in our life to say, look, we need to be teaching our children to trust in God's plans even when no one else does and to trust in God's law when no one else in society is and to respect people, you know, the people who work for us, the people we work for and everybody in between. And there's so many things we can get from that as parents. I want to finish these last few minutes though. I want to tell you about a person named Naomi. Not the Naomi we see in Ruth, but someone with that same name, Uh, Naomi tells this story where she explains her when she was converted, and she mentions it was back in the early 70s. And back in the early 70s, Naomi lived in San Antonio, Texas, and while she was there, she says that she doesn't exactly know what happened, but while she was in high school, the kids from the local church of Christ were on fire for the Lord. At that time, she was Catholic, uh, and she would say, you know, her family was just kind of Catholic, but she was Catholic. But she said, the kids were on fire for the Lord. And it was a huge thing in the city. She said that it was to the point where parents were trying to watch who their kids hung out with because they were afraid these Church of Christ kids were going to convert their own, their friends. And that their parents, she said, would even not let them go to football games because they were afraid these kids would sit with them and start talking to them about the Bible and that they might learn the truth and be converted. Well, Naomi was in high school during that time. And whatever it was in the local church that fired those teens up, she listened. And she's a smart girl. She listened and she studied on her own. And, and she realized the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. And she realized, man, I, I do want to do things right. And so she talked to her parents, like any high schooler probably would in that decision. And they said, look, we're not against what you're doing. By no means, we're not against what you're doing, but we're not going to support it. If you think you're adult enough to make this decision for yourself, then go ahead, but we're not going to drive you to church. We're not going to be supportive of the decision. We're not going to kick you out. There are many times you hear stories of people being kicked out of their home. They say, we're not going to kick you out, but we're not going to support this. You're going to be on your own here. She thought about that. She read the simplicity of the gospel, and she decided that she she said, it's worth it. It's worth it at this point. And what I love about her story is she mentions after she became a Christian and put on Christ in baptism, after that moment that the church didn't just drop her, 
You know, there could be a lot of people who say, well, let's just see if we can't convert everyone in town, get them wet, and then leave them alone. She said the kids stayed, and they stayed dedicated. And when she couldn't get to church, they came to her. They'd have church out in the front yard under a tree in San Antonio, Texas. Plot twist. It's hot in San Antonio, Texas, okay? And they would have church services for her right out there in her front yard. And that, that made the biggest impact. It wasn't just getting her wet. It wasn't just getting her, you know, another, another point on the bulletin, right, of how many baptisms we've had that year. That they really cared. Now, some of you actually know this in this crowd, but Naomi is my mother. And when I'm in debt to those young people. I feel it all the time. When, when she tells that story, when she explains how these young people had no idea exactly who she was, but they were so dedicated in their faith, they were willing to reach out. When people wouldn't let their kids hang out with them, they were still on it. And I think, what in the world caught those kids on fire? Because I want to find that. And as parents, what we need to start thinking about is how can we instill that in our kids? As we look at the list of things that Boaz did and the character that he had, we need to look at the godly characters and where that all came from and say, how can we instill that in our young people? Because what that does is that keeps our legacy from just stopping with us, right? If we really believe this stuff and you're a Wednesday night crowd, and I know you do, then we want to continue. We need to be sure that we're instilling these things in our children, in our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our cousins, whatever it happens to be, the kids in your Bible school class. We need to make sure they know this and believe this stuff. Because we never think about the impact that will have. We don't know exactly how Rahab, what exactly happened before she got married. But all we know is once she was married, her life was in a totally different direction. Or actually before that. But we know her life took on a whole other form. And that now she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus and the Hall of Fame of Faith. We never know who we interact with. The children we interact with, the young people, the co-workers, the neighbors, all those people. We never know where that line ends. We need to keep that in mind throughout our thing as, as we go throughout our day. Because here's a lady that none of us would want to bring home to meet our parents, right? It'd be the most uncomfortable meeting we could imagine. And yet she had such an impact on the kingdom. And I'm grateful for that. 